bringing you the latest in tax credit news. This is Tax Credit Tuesday with your host, Michael Novogratik. The legislative challenges have been significant. We very much need legislation. we got to produce housing. We're still in a very volatile industry. It's a challenging atmosphere for almost anyone. We can't get all these big signals and messages. If he doesn't have a bipartisan bill, nothing's going to happen. Alternative energy is still very expensive. Hello, I'm Michael Novogratik, and this is Tax Credit Tuesday. Today is Tuesday, February 11th, 2014. I'll start this week's podcast with the latest on the debt limit. On Friday, we reached the end of the extension that Congress included in the 2014 Continuing Appropriations Act, and now Treasury is using extraordinary measures to meet the nation's debt obligations. I'll also discuss the confirmation of Senator Max Baucus as the next U.S. Ambassador to China and what it might mean for tax reform. In this week's New Markets Tax Credit section, I share news about legislation that would permanently extend the New Markets Tax Credit Program. I also report on the Community Development Financial Institution Fund's release of comments on its Community Investment Impact System, or CIS, and compliance reporting as well. I also share the February Qualified Equity Investment Issuance Report. In our Low-Income Housing Tax Credit segment, I have good news about 900 communities that will retain their rural designation until at least the year 2020. I also share the name of another supporter of the Low-Income Housing Tax Credit Rate Act, which would make permanent the 9% tax credit floor. In Renewable Energy Tax Credit news, I share the results of a report from the Treasury Inspector General for Tax Administration about the potential double-dipping in the Section 1603 grant program. I also share a report for the American Wind Energy Association about the activity in the wind industry in the last quarter of 2013. Finally, In our historic tax credit section, I have two state-level updates. The first is from Indiana, where a bill to increase the number of historic tax credits available each year has morphed into a bill that makes no changes to the program, but instead commissions a study comparing the existing program to a cash grant program. The second is about Kentucky's historic tax credit, where a bill to reduce the credit percentage used to determine the amount of the tax credit awarded to individual projects, has received the support, that's right, the support of historic preservation advocates. If you're ready, let's get started. In general news, I begin, unfortunately, once again, with the debt limit. Congress extended the statutory debt limit through February 7th under the 2014 Continuing Appropriations Act. Well, February 7th was last Friday. And that date passed without Congress approving normal borrowing authority. On Saturday, Treasury began implementing extraordinary measures to meet the nation's borrowing needs on a temporary basis. Treasury Secretary Jacob Liu included all of this in a letter that he sent to Speaker of the House John Boehner on Friday. Secretary Liu once again asked the Speaker to address the debt limit before the country defaults on any of its debts. He added that the Treasury would exhaust its use of extraordinary measures in late February, and that he could not guarantee that the extraordinary measures would last beyond Thursday, February 27th. He urged Congress to act as soon as possible to pass legislation enabling the debt ceiling to be raised. Secretary Liu sent the letter on Friday after Congress had adjourned for the week without introducing legislation to address the debt ceiling. 
At this time, I'm unsure what debt limit legislation will look like. In the past, Republicans have tried to include policy agenda items to legislation to raise the debt ceiling or fund the government. The most recent instance of this was when House Republicans attempted to link the fiscal year 2014 budget bill to the rollback of the Affordable Care Act. This time around, the Keystone Pipeline has received attention as a possible agenda item to attach. Though, some sources say Republican leadership is concerned about using such tactics because midterm elections are approaching. Nonetheless, as of last night, it appeared that House Republicans would turn to the restoration of pension cuts for retired soldiers as the agenda item that would be attached, with a vote possibly on Wednesday. Then again, that changed this morning, as it now appears that a clean debt ceiling measure is headed to the House floor. All I can say is follow me on Twitter for ongoing updates, some of which may be posted before you listen to this podcast. In the Senate, I note, Democrats have already expressed their intent to pass a so-called clean limit debt ceiling bill, meaning, of course, that there's no additional policy agenda items attached, just a simple increase in the debt limit. Now, in addition to sending Twitter updates, we will discuss efforts to raise the debt ceiling in next week's podcast. In other general news, Senator Max Baucus has been confirmed as the next U.S. ambassador to China. The Senate confirmed his nomination on Thursday, February 6th, and Baucus has resigned his seat in the Senate and his position as chairman of the Senate Finance Committee. Senator Ron Wyden from Oregon will take over leadership of the Finance Committee this week. Montana Governor Steve Bullock appointed his lieutenant governor, John Walsh, to finish Baucus's term in the Senate. Walsh had already announced plans to run for the Senate after Senator Baucus announced his retirement last April. In a farewell address, Senator Baucus thanked Chairman of the House Ways and Means Committee Dave Camp and mentioned their time working on tax reform. My Washington Wire column in the next issue of the Journal of Tax Credits contains an in-depth review of incoming Chairman Wyden's co-sponsorship and voting record in the area of affordable housing community development, and renewable energy. Regarding tax reform and tax extenders, many believe that tax reform is essentially on hold in the Senate, and tax extenders will likely be moved to the forefront. With a consideration of an extender's bill in the Senate in March, April, or May. Following that, many believe the House Ways and Means Committee may have no practical option other than to take up extenders as well. I also note A recent Congressional Budget Office report estimated the cost in 2014 of tax extenders would be about $51 billion. The cost over 10 years to make extenders permanent is about $913 billion. One thing is certain, though. I'll bring you updates as more news breaks regarding federal income tax reform and tax extenders, updates via Twitter, and future podcasts. Also, on Capitol Hill... Today, the Senate Budget Committee is holding a hearing on the Congressional Budget Office's report titled The Budget and Economic Outlook 2014-2024. to The key witness is Doug Elmendorf, Director of the Congressional Budget Office. I'll report back on his testimony next week. Also, I remind our listeners that looking forward over the next few weeks, on March 4th, the Office of Management Budget, OMB, is scheduled to submit top lines for the administration's fiscal year 2015 budget request. A week later, on March 11th, 
OMB is scheduled to submit the details of the administration's fiscal year 2015 budget request. In new market tax credit news, Representative Richard Neal recently introduced the Invest in the United States Act of 2014, or H.R. 3939. Among other things, H.R. 3939 would permanently, that's right, permanently extend the New Markets Tax Credit Program. The New Markets Tax Credit Program would receive an annual allocation amount of $5 billion and would be indexed for inflation. In a recent press release, Representative Neal said that this legislation will help create an environment where the U.S. economy can expand by making the strategic investment needed to spur growth. The amendments made to the New Market Tax Credit Program would become effective the day H.R. 3939 is passed. The bill has been referred to the House Committees on Ways and Means, Transportation, Infrastructure, and Education and the Workforce. To read the bill, go to www.newmarketscredits.com and click on the Legislation tab. In other New Market Tax Credit news, the Community Development Finance Institutions Fund, or CDFI Fund, has released responses to its request for public comment on the Annual Community Investment Impact System, or CIS. Any changes to CIS would affect awardees of the CDFI program, the Native American CDFI Assistance Program, and the New Markets Tax Credit Program. CIS includes information on awardees and is used to assess their activities and overall program compliance. Comments were invited on all aspects of the information collection, including its efficiency and effectiveness. In a supporting statement, the CDFI fund summarized the suggestions submitted and posted a response to each one. For example, some commentators, including the New Markets Task Force Working Group, requested clear multi-CDE reporting guidance. The CDFI fund responded that it will issue a frequently asked questions document on multi-CDE reporting. The CDFI fund said it will also post additional instructions on the CIS web interface and will include additional guidance in future training material. Others suggested that transaction-level reports for CDFIs are too complicated. The CDFI fund said it will review whether it can eliminate certain information fields to streamline the process. You can find all of the comments and the CDFI fund's responses at www.newmarketscredits.com. That includes a response from the New Market Tax Credit Working Group. If you have any questions about CIS or compliance reporting, I encourage you to contact my partner, Owen Gray, in our San Francisco office. He can be reached at 415-356-8000. And if you're interested in joining the New Market Task Credit Working Group or simply learning more about it, please contact my partner, Brad Elphick, in our Atlanta office. Brad can be reached at 678-867-2333. The Community Development Financial Institutions Fund also recently released its monthly Qualified Equity Investment Issuance Report. Among other things, the report identifies New Markets Tax Credit allocatees, the total allocation amount received by each entity, the total dollar amount finalized, and the amount remaining to be issued. For the month of January, community development entities issued more than $109 million in additional QEIs. The $109 million in additional QEIs fits well within the range issued by CDEs each month during the previous year. That leaves the amount of remaining new market tax credit allocations at $1.4 billion. As we know, of the $1.4 billion that remains, substantially all of it has been soft-circled for specific transactions. If you need help finding an allocation or closing a transaction, I encourage you to contact Annette Stevenson, 
partner in Novogratz Cleveland, Ohio office at 216-239-5510. Or send an email to Annette, A-N-N-E-T-T-E, period Stevenson, S-T-E-V-E-N-S-O-N, at Novaco.com. And if you'd like to review the latest QEI issuance report, you can find it at www.NewMarketsCredits.com. In low-income housing tax credit news, I'm happy to report that President Obama has signed the Agriculture Act of 2014 into law. Commonly referred to as the Farm Bill, H.R. 2642 ensures that communities eligible since 2000 for rural housing programs will retain their eligibility through the year 2020. It also increases the population definition of a rural community from 25,000 to 35,000. As you may know, in October, the USDA began using population data from the 2010 census instead of the 2000 census to determine rural designations. Using that data cost more than 900 communities their rural designations. The loss affected future development of the low-income housing tax credit properties as well as access to loans and other funding sources. Ultimately, this would have adversely affected the feasibility of developing affordable housing in rural areas. That's why rural communities across the country were able to breathe a sigh of relief when the Farm Bill was enacted last week. And here's some more good news. The National Association of Home Builders estimates that the Farm Bill will generate $1.2 billion more in rural housing investment. If you want to learn more about rural funding for affordable housing, I encourage you to contact my partner, Mike Morrison, in our San Francisco office. You can reach Mike at 415-356-8000. I'm also pleased to report that Senator Mark Begich from Alaska has signed on to support legislation that would create permanent fixed-rate floors for the low-income housing tax credit. As you know, the temporary 9% floor expired at the end of last year. Senator Maria Cantwell from Washington introduced S-1442, the Improving the Low-Income Housing Tax Credit Rate Act, in August to make permanent a fixed-rate floor for 9% low-income housing tax credits. It would also provide a 4% credit rate floor for all allocated credits. That floor, though, would not apply to taxes and bond credits. The proposed amendments would apply to buildings placed in service after the bill is enacted. Last month, Senator Begich became the 26th senator to co-sponsor the legislation. You can find a copy of the bill at www.taxcredithousing.com. In renewable energy tax credit news, The Treasury Inspector General for Tax Administration, or TIGTA, recently released a report that could have the IRS taking a closer look at recipients of Section 1603 grants. TIGTA reviewed Section 1603 grants awarded in lieu of energy investment tax credits. The agency found that the Internal Revenue Service, or IRS, doesn't currently have a permanent process to identify Section 1603 grant recipients who may have also improperly claimed renewable energy investment tax credits. As you know, the Section 1603 grant is awarded in lieu of investment tax credits. A taxpayer is not allowed to claim both a grant and investment tax credits for the same project. The IRS is currently conducting a compliance initiative project to review a sample set of 99 large and small businesses that were awarded Section 1603 grants. Of the 99 taxpayers reviewed, the IRS found issues of noncompliance in 59. As a result, 
The TIGTA report recommended further oversight of the $18.5 billion in Section 1603 grants distributed since the program's inception in 2009. Specifically, it recommended that the IRS look at the possibility of placing an indicator on the taxpayer files of Section 1603 recipients. That way, IRS staff will be alerted before processing any amended returns that claim an investment tax credit. You can find a copy of the report at www.energytaxcredits.com. And if you have any questions about what this report means to your particular project or what the IRS's compliance initiative could mean, please contact my partner, Stephen Tracy, in our San Francisco office, or Tony Grapponi in our Boston, Massachusetts office. Turning to wind energy, the American Wind Energy Association, or AWEA, recently released its U.S. wind industry fourth quarter 2013 market report. AWEA releases these reports each quarter to provide a snapshot of the U.S. wind industry activity. These reports include updates on new wind developments, installed wind capacity, current wind developments under construction, and the number of power purchase agreements or PPAs signed. According to the report, at the end of 2013, there were more U.S. wind power megawatts under construction than ever before. More than 12,000 megawatts of new generation capacity was under construction, which includes a record-breaking 10,900 megawatts of wind energy that started construction during the fourth quarter of 2013. Furthermore, utilities and corporate purchasers signed at least 60 power purchase agreements for nearly 8,000 megawatts. This is an all-time record of the number of PPAs signed in a single year, according to the report. The report says that this record growth in the wind industry is in large part a result of two key factors. First, the extension of the production tax credit, and second, a 43% reduction in the cost of wind energy over the last four years. The reduction is largely a result of advances in wind technology. AWEA CEO Tom Kiernan said that these results show that the PTC continues to be an effective and efficient program that drives billions of dollars in private investment into our economy. He added that the wind industry's current growth shows how powerful the PTC is at incentivizing investment in wind energy. The report indicates that this growth trend will carry over into 2014. To learn more about the report, go to www.awea.org. In historic tax credit news, recently legislation has emerged in Indiana that asks the Commission on state tax and finance policy to compare the effectiveness of Indiana's state historic preservation tax credit program to the effectiveness of grant programs. Indiana HB 1215 was originally introduced to expand Indiana's annual historic tax credit cap from $450,000 to $10 million. Since then, the bill has experienced substantial changes. It briefly eliminated the historic tax credit altogether and replaced it with a grant program. Then, a few days later, the House Ways and Means Committee dropped the grant program. Instead, they decided the matter needed further study. Now, HB 1215 does not affect the historic tax credit program at all. It simply calls for the State Tax and Finance Policy Commission to compare the tax credit program to a cash grant program. If passed, the Commission will be required to submit its findings and recommendations to the Legislative Council before November 1, 2014. At the time of this recording, the bill had been referred to the Senate. While the proposed review would specifically look at the Indiana State Historic Tax Credit as compared to a cash grant, 
The study would have broader policy implications for all state tax credits throughout the nation, and potentially for federal tax credits as well. As such, as this bill moves through the Senate, it merits close attention. In other state historic tax credit news, I'd like to discuss a new bill out of Kentucky. House Bill 258 is entitled Simplification of the Kentucky State Historic Tax Credit, and it makes a number of changes to the current credit, including removing the $5 million program cap and replacing the caps with a flat 15% tax credit rate. The current tax credit rate is 20%. Despite the reduction in the tax credit rate, the changes could increase the use of the credit. Preservation Action, a national nonprofit organization that lobbies for historic preservation, said that the bill will simplify the administrative procedures. This will make the tax credit more uniform and align Kentucky's application with the federal historic tax credit application process. At present, developers must submit credit applications for review by a certain date each year. The bill has been sent to the Interim Joint Committee on Appropriations and Revenue. And if you'd like to learn more about either Indiana's or Kentucky's state tax credit programs, please visit the Historic Tax Credit Resource Center. I also invite you to contact Tom Bosha in our Cleveland, Ohio office. Well, that brings me to the end of this week's report. Please join me again next week for another Tax Credit Tuesday. This is Michael Novogratik. I'll be back next week. Thanks for listening. This weekly podcast has been brought to you by Novogratik & Company, LLP. Archive discussions are available online at www.novaco.com forward slash podcast or by subscribing to the Tax Credit Tuesday podcast in iTunes. Novogratik & Company, LLP is a national certified public accounting and consulting firm with offices nationwide. Learn more about our professional services at www dot novaco dot com.